Good evening, everybody. I appreciate you being with us for this evening's service. Uh, you can open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, I just have one an announcement that I'd like to quickly slip in before we pray and start the lesson. My apologies, I should have announced this this morning. We had a, a baby dedication this morning at church, as many of you know, and uh, what a wonderful service that was. I thank all of you for being a part of that. But uh, I got distracted and, and forgot to mention that the small group meetings that we have will continue into the month of December. However, we're going to slightly change uh, the, the venue. We are going to rotate it from one area to the next and only have one meeting place per week. And we're doing this because so many people are, are, are heading out of town and so many students are, are um, heading home during the break. So this coming Thursday, we are going to be meeting at my house uh, from 6 to 7 o'clock. The time remains the same, but we will not have meetings in Bailey Park at Garrett's house or in Meter Park at Francois's house. So this will everybody should come to my house if you're going to come to the midweek service. And then each week we will rotate that and we'll let you know which venue we're going to uh, hold that meeting at. All right, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse number 7. As you can see, we're continuing on. This is part two of this chapter. Last week, we dealt with verses 1 to 6, uh, dealing with disobedience. And of course, some of this is going to overlap. A little bit of what we said last week is going to fit in perfectly with what we're going to cover tonight. Verses 7 to 11 is all I'm going to try to cover tonight. We're going to be speaking about proving one's power and I specifically am referring to the authority that we have been given by the Lord to uh, help and serve and minister to others. And how do we go about proving that? Why should we do it? When should we do it? We're going to see, I believe, in this passage uh, several things that will help us with that. So if you would, please bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer before we dive in. Father, thank you for this privilege today. Uh, to meet with the saints. What a, what a blessing it was to see so many people out and to dedicate those children and, uh, Lord, for you to move amongst us. And we pray that even tonight we may not be able to see one another in the flesh, but uh, as we read, Lord, in the Bible, we can be there in the Spirit. And we do pray that you'd feed us tonight, guide me as I speak. Lord, my voice isn't strong, so tonight I lean completely on your voice and I literally ask that you speak through me, Father. I pray you would communicate truth to us on this very important subject of how to handle the authority you've given us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, this chapter, I believe, speaks to the issue of spiritual warfare. And uh, this chapter, the next, and even through the rest of the book, Paul's going to be concentrating uh, uh, on this spiritual warfare. And one thing that I think gets overlooked a lot is how the devil will try to interrupt the authority structure that God has put in place in our lives. Uh, there are several different authority structures that God has ordained. And these things you can learn. Once you learn how one authority structure works, uh, you can take those good examples and apply them to each structure. So what I mean by that is you can look at a pastor to his church members, right? There's there's an authority that Christ gave to those spiritual leaders for the church. But then also the husband to a wife, parents to children, a boss to an employee, uh, the king or the president to the citizens of the country. And on it could go anywhere you see an authority structure. There are certain behaviors that God expects from the leadership. And there are certain behaviors that he expects from those uh, that are following. And Paul, in a position of leadership... Right? The church at Corinth, some had turned against him. Some false prophets or preachers had come in and, and turned some of the Corinthians against Paul. And, and now it's created a bit of a rift in this church. And rather than follow Paul's advice and the teachings, they are now stirring up trouble. They're gossiping. They're whispering. They're backbiting. There's envy and strife in the church. And Paul, he's had enough of it. And he is writing very pointedly to them, saying, Guys, I don't want to have to be this bold. I showed you the verse last week. Paul said, I don't want to come with a rod. I'd rather come in the spirit of meekness and love. But 
guys, you're kind of forcing my hand. So if, if you want me to drop the hammer, if you want me to, to lay it out real clear and real sharp, I can do that. And uh, we're going to see several things that speak to that. But uh, I, I, let me point out, uh, maybe just remind you something that we covered recently in church. I took you through Second Peter. I preached through the book verse by verse. And in 2 Peter 2, we saw that one of the things false prophets do is despise government, right? So they despise the authority structure. And this is one of the devil's devices. God has put these authority structures in our lives to protect us, to keep us in line, to, to help everything move forward at the pace and at the rate that it should. And when people throw the authority structure away, and they fail to respect those God-ordained offices of authority, then things become confusing. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, Paul said, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And that's what the devil will try to disrupt. And this is why within a local church, we should, right? any local church should take very seriously uh, when people begin to gossip when there are whisper campaigns, when people begin to voice their complaints to all the other members about the leadership in the church, if there are problems with leadership in the church, there is a, a biblical way of handling that. There's no, no verse in the Bible that says the leadership of the church is always right or that you have to, do, you have to follow everything they say regardless of whether or not they're doing right. You can judge the leadership by the Bible. Paul gave us a standard when he said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I am a follower of Christ. Do you, do you see how Paul put a checks and balance in there? He didn't say, full stop, be followers of me. Right? He, he, he didn't say, you have to do everything I say regardless of whether or not it makes sense. Paul said, you can check me. If I'm following Christ, then follow me. So, there is a proper way to handle problems with the leadership. And Paul, of course, he's, he's showing a kind of the, the drastic side of it. When things have gotten a bit out of hand, and now Paul has got to make the matter very clear. So verse number seven, we're going to be dealing with proving one's power. I'm going to take you through these verses uh, just to try to help you understand the, the way it's worded and what Paul's saying. And then there are three points I want to make uh, from this passage. So verse 7 says, Do you look on things after the outward appearance? So some people were jumping to conclusions about Paul's ministry, but they were judging him um, based on a, a man-made standard or preference. They're looking on the outward appearance. Now Jesus said in John 7, 24, Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So rather than looking at the substance of what Paul was saying, rather than taking into account uh, the verses of Scripture he gave and how he supported his arguments, they didn't evaluate the substance. Rather, they were looking at the method of delivery. It, if I'm understanding the passage correctly, they looked at Paul's weak bodily presence and they were listening to the way that he was speaking, right? How he was saying it. And from what we read, Paul must have been an, uh, he was an educated man, and I would assume an eloquent speaker. However, the Bible does go out of its way to tell us that Apollos was eloquent. It never, it never goes that far to you know, say that about Paul. Uh, but there's nothing that would suggest Paul was... Uh, an uneducated and ignorant man, like we read in Acts 4 about those other apostles. But something about the way Paul presented the message, maybe he uh, just said it in, in such a way that some of the Corinthians thought, wow, it, we expected this large bear of a man to get up with this booming voice and thunder down the, the word of God and thus saith the Lord and really give it to us. But then here comes Paul, this small, frail, weak, broken man. And, and maybe he had a soft voice. Maybe, maybe he didn't have that booming, thundering uh, 
pound the pulpit kind of a voice. Maybe that's not how he presented it. He told us that he did use meekness and gentleness when he approached these people. And some of the people were looking at that softer approach and saying, wow, if that's how you're going to say it, you must not be the real deal. Now, believe it or not, Paul actually struggled with this for a while with the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you remember that chapter, Paul has to explain to them that even though he is not married, and even though he doesn't take an offering after he preaches, he is still a legitimate apostle. Some Corinthians were doubting Paul's, not just his calling, but as we see here, even his salvation. He's saying that the Corinthians were making the claim that you say you're an apostle. You say you're a servant of Christ. We know apostles. We know Peter. Uh, we've met Apollos. We've met some other guy. you know, John, whoever they've met. These guys, when they preach, they take an offering. These guys have wives. You're not married. You don't take an offering. So you must not be the real deal. Paul has had to defend himself on, on some other occasions. So he's familiar with this accusation. Do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, so he belongs to Jesus, let him, him, let him of himself think this again. So before you start accusing me of being lost, think through your own salvation. What is it when somebody says, are you saved? How do you answer that question? What makes you think you're saved? He says, let him, think, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ's. So evidently, the we would suggest it's not just Paul himself, but Paul's whole group that, you know, the, his fellow laborers that he moves with. A certain portion of the Corinthian church saw them as weak, and puny would probably be a, an apt word for this. He says, now guys, rather than look at how we say it and how we present it, look at what we're saying. And what we claim is that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, that he is the Messiah, that he paid for our sins, his blood offers forgiveness. Look at the substance of what we're professing. And he says, if you'll look at our testimony and compare it with what you claim to be sufficient for salvation, you'll see that we are all on the same page. He said, to judge me based on how I say it, that's a faulty premise. Uh, you can even see a couple verses later in verse 10. Let me just pull it down a little bit. In verse 10, Paul says, For his letters say they are weighty and powerful. So when Paul writes a letter, he can really string together some strong words. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Now that word contemptible, if I can, let me just give you a couple other ways to understand that word. That contemptible is a fine word by itself. Oh boy, I don't know if you can see all that. There's nothing I can do about it on the screen. I'm sorry. So let me just read it. This is a variation and meaning the same. Contemptible, despise, least esteemed, or set at naught. So we would say to make it nothing. So the Corinthians were saying this guy's speech is worth nothing. And it had nothing to do with the, like I said, the content. It had to do with the, with the delivery and how he was saying it. Because that's the, that's the outward appearance of it. Now, it's a shame this still goes on today, right? Now, all of us are allowed to have preferences maybe of a preaching style. Maybe you like that loud, thunderous guy. Maybe you like the softer-spoken fella. You know, to be honest, <laughs> uh, my, my daughter asks me all the time, Daddy, what's your favorite food or what's your favorite dessert? It depends on what day of the week it is, right? My, my taste my palate changes from day to day. Same thing with preaching. One day I might like that supercharged, loud guy, and the next time it, I might enjoy that more laid-back uh, style. Help yourself. I say expose yourself to all of it, and you're allowed to have your preference. But don't let your final judgment about this man's salvation or this man's calling be based on his style of preaching. Just because he's soft or maybe he's Maybe he's not a wordsmith. Maybe he doesn't know how to find the perfect word to put in the perfect spot every time. What you've got to look at is what is the message he's communicating, especially with younger preachers 
right? Please be patient. Be patient as a man is learning to preach. It's not as easy as you think to stand up and just deliver, uh, to communicate every thought from your head and heart perfectly to the people. If any of you've tried to preach or if you've ever done any public speaking, you know just the factor of standing up in front of a bunch of people and having 50 or 100 or 200 or 500 people looking at you, that, that pressure is something that you can't really, it's difficult to prepare for that. Uh, it's difficult to prepare to preach online like this. It took me quite a while to get used to doing this. And to be honest, I'm still not fully used to it. Try to look at the man's content, right? I have heard almost every style of preaching I can imagine. I've heard preaching in India. I've heard it in Africa, all over Africa. I've heard it in Mozambique. I've heard it in Zimbabwe. I've heard it in Zambia, Malawi. I've heard it in South Africa, various places. I've been in Canada. I've been in Europe, uh, in England. I've been all over America, over 40 states. 200, I've been in over 200 churches. I've seen so many different styles. And I can get something out of all of them. As long as the man has substance, right? The style can come and go, as long as there's substance. There are a lot of times that, and I speak this to a preacher's shame, and let me put myself in the group immediately. I have, not, I never set out to do it, but I have caught myself after a sermon, realizing that because I lacked a certain, uh, I, I didn't have enough to say on a certain point, rather than just moving on to the next point. Maybe I was ill-prepared, or maybe I forgot what I was saying. All of a sudden, I try, to, I try to make up for it with drama. And you try to, to stir the crowd with the manner in which you say it, rather than the actual message that you're giving. Now, you can read in the Bible, God told Isaiah, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Right there, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. There's nothing wrong with lifting your voice and, and emphasizing a point, right? That, that's perfectly legitimate. But don't let the drama of your preaching, the drama of your, of your mannerisms, that shouldn't be the, the thing that sparks people to movement, to action, right? It should be the message because if it's just for the drama, You'll have to continually repeat that drama to get the crowd to react. Whereas if you're giving them substance, right, the Word of God is quick and powerful. Not, not the messenger, but the message. It's quick. It's powerful. It can penetrate the heart. So whatever style you want to go with, just be sure that it's packed full of Bible and biblical information. Now, verse 8, Paul says, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority. So this, when he says, for though I should, we would, in, in modern English, say that a little different. For even if I wanted to. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority. So Paul, he says, you know what I feel like doing? You know what I'm tempted to do? I'm tempted to, to lay it all out for you and explain the authority that Christ has given me and that I have over you. And I want to prove it to you. I could spell it out and say, here's my testimony. I saw the Lord Jesus. The Lord met with me in Arabia. We know this from Galatians 1 and discipled me personally. The Lord used me to reveal the mysteries of the faith, the mysteries of the gospel to the body of Christ. The Lord is using me to send the gospel to all these new groups of Gentiles. The Lord has used me to do this many miracles. And if you were to look at how many miracles Paul did compared to others, I'm sure that Paul's, Paul's would have stacked up much higher. So Paul could have made a very powerful case for his authority. He could have proved it. He could have said, listen, if you want to see it, go ask the people that I've prayed out of the church. Right? Because there are examples of this where a brother uh, would not repent. And Paul says, let's pray them out. You put them out and let's pray them out. 
which is a difference. One, you put them out. You don't let them come back to church until they've repented. This is in 1 Corinthians 5, by the way. And the other side of it is you pray, right? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, you deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul would have been able to say, listen, there are people that I have prayed for and, and not... There's the good side, right? We pray for people. You see some miraculous change in their life and great things happen. Then there are sometimes you pray and say, God, please, this person needs a punishment. We've tried the gentle way, the meek way. They're not getting it. So God, we're going to have to try this more drastic measure. And Paul could have pointed to those instances and he could have boasted about that. That's how it would have been understood by the Corinthians that this guy is laying out his spiritual CV telling us all all of the great things about himself and why we should be obedient and follow him. Now Paul says, you know, I'm kind of tempted to do that. He said, for though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, let me point out and I'll show you in just a moment, Paul does go on to spell out a little bit of his authority. He does include that in this letter of 2 Corinthians. But by no means does he give us the whole show. He doesn't tell us everything. Right? I've tried to explain all of the things he could have said. He didn't lay all that out in this letter. I'm going to show you in chapter 11 uh, a little bit. Obviously, we'll go through that when we come to the verses. But he mentions it in chapter 11 and then also you know, warns them a bit in chapter 12. or uh, Yeah, 12 and 13 about it. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for destruction. I'm going to talk about that more um, later on, but this is one thing you've got to remember about having authority is why you have that authority. God has charged you, whether you're the boss, whether you're the dad, whether you're the husband, whether you're the pastor, God has given you that position and that authority to be a help to people. It's not for you to build yourself up and to build up this honor among men. It's there to, God's given you that authority to build the people up around you. So, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. So Paul says, even if I have to spell it all out for you, that's not Paul's first move. It's not what he would want to do, but he wouldn't be ashamed because everything he'd be saying is the truth. It's not as if he has to fatten up his CV with all these false accomplishments. He doesn't need to brag about things that other people have done as if he's done them. You can see it a little later in, in the chapter. Um, I'll just skip you down to it real quick. In verse 14, For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reach not unto you. For we are come as far as unto you also in preaching the gospel. Verse 16, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. So Paul says, if I wanted to talk about uh, the, the reasons that you should submit to my authority, he says, you guys, the Corinthians, are part of it, but I don't need to brag about what some other guy is doing. I can just talk about how the Lord has used me in my ministry, and you Corinthians are evidence of that. All right, so back in, in verse, uh, moving into verse 9, he says, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. So this is what's holding Paul back from laying out somewhat more of the authority. He's going to talk about some of it. But the reason he doesn't give it all is because he says, guys, I'm afraid if I were to lay it all out, spell it all out for you, it would scare you. He said, to see just how much the Lord has given me and how much the Lord has used me and how my spiritual CV stacks up against some of these other guys that are supposedly preaching to you and trying to minister to you. He says, if you were to compare the two, it, would, it might terrify you. And especially when Paul spells out how he's prayed against certain people and includes those testimonies and how things turned out there. He says, I, I don't want you guys to get scared. So Paul's trying to stay a bit balanced in this. Now, verse 10, he says, For his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, 
and his speech contemptible. I've already spoken a little bit about this, but when Paul wrote the letters that we have, right, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and even the other epistles to, to the other churches, you can see that he doesn't hold back. I mean, he's very plain and straightforward and, and bold, but evidently in, in, when he's physically among the people, he came across very differently. And for some people, this was an issue. In verse 11, Paul is kind of, um, he's, I want to say talking trash, right? Because uh, I've been busy with athletics and sports my whole life. That's, that's, that's the term that comes to my mind. But he's not talking trash. That's probably the wrong thing to say here. But Paul's making, he's making it very clear what he's prepared to do. Let such an one think this, that. Such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, so very bold, powerful, such will we be also indeed when we are present. He said, now guys, and, and remember last week we talked about this a little bit. Paul says, don't make me mix the two. Don't, don't make me show up and, and use that same boldness that you read about in the letters. Because if I do that, guys, it's, no parent should enjoy using the rod on their children, even though sometimes we have to, right? Paul wouldn't enjoy that. And no doubt, especially some younger, more immature Christians would misread that and think, wow, here comes this apostle. You know, we've heard about this guy, Paul. Can you imagine a visitor in the church that particular Sunday that Paul shows up and he has to step in and kind of clean house a little bit, man, this, this could very quickly get misunderstood as Paul being aggressive or rash or, you know, full of wrath. Paul says, guys, don't, please don't make me put these two together. But if I have to, I will. Because Paul knows after you have exhausted all the other measures of meekness, gentleness, warning them, admonishing them, Eventually, you have to bring out the rod. It is necessary in order to keep, in order to protect the other people in the church that are, that might be affected by this bad attitude being spread. All right, now I, I believe that gives you a handle on these four four or five verses. I want to take you to uh, chapter E a little later in chapter eleven, and just show you. I've mentioned that Paul did go on to explain, that's not the right place, um, that Paul does go on to explain his authority, uh, but just partially, right? He, he, he said in chapter 10, though I should boast somewhat more, he's not going to do more, he's going to do the less of it here, but you can see a snippet, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 17, that which I speak I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Now, the way that's worded immediately kind of grabs your attention. Is Paul saying that he's not led by the Lord to say these things? I believe under the circumstance, what he's saying is, you guys have put me into a very difficult position it's not that Paul's being rebellious and Jesus said, don't say it, and now he's saying it. He's saying, guys, I'm going to have to speak highly of myself for a moment. And that is generally not the way the Lord wants us to handle things. We don't go into the room and say, listen, here's, my, here's every reason you should appreciate me. So Paul understands that boasting is going to be received as a foolish thing to do. But he, you can see in verse 18 why he's doing it. This is not of, I want to say it's not of Paul's own volition. He's kind of been forced into this position. Verse 18, seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. So these false prophets were showing up and offering their CVs. So he says, okay, guys, then you're going to have to hear mine. Verse 19, for ye suffer fools gladly. He says, you guys put up with these idiotic, Preachers coming in, talking about another Jesus with another gospel. And then Paul gets quite sarcastic with him in verse 19. Seeing ye yourselves are wise. 
So he says, you guys are making these claims about how wise you are and how you can discern between the right and wrong spirit and the right and wrong gospel and Jesus and preachers. He says, guys, then you need to hear the whole story. These guys have been telling you how great they are. Look at, look at why you should take my preaching seriously. And what Paul goes on to do for the rest of the chapter, rather than speak about all the powerful things he's done, you can see it in verse 21, I speak as concerning reproach as though we had been weak. How be it, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. So he says, you want to talk about those bold, powerful things? I can talk about that too. I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. I come from Abraham. Verse 23, I'm a minister of Christ. I speak as a fool. I am more. And now, why do you think you're more of a minister of Christ? And instead of talking about all the miracles and the thousands of conversions, which he could have, he instead says, in labors more abundant and stripes above measure, and starts talking about all of his sufferings. And he glories in that. And that's where Paul cuts it off. Now, I'll obviously say more about this when we go through it later on, uh, probably next year. Uh, let me show you a couple more verses in chapter 12. After Paul has explained why uh, God has allowed him to be sick, right? Because this would explain the whole bodily presence being weak. God has left me sick. He won't take this thorn out of my flesh. And there's a reason for it. It doesn't mean I'm weak. I'm strong through Christ and so forth. He gets to the end of that chapter. And in verse 19, he says, again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you. He says, guys, I don't have to make excuses to you. I don't owe you explanations. Now, because Paul cares about them, that's why he's taking time to explain everything to them, or everything to them. He says at the end of the verse, we speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. So he's trying to help them. Verse 20, for I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not. It, that's pretty straightforward. He says, guys, I'm afraid that if I'm writing this letter so that you can get things straightened up before I get there. Because if I get there and you're not living right, you may not like that. You might not like that Paul that shows up at the end of the verse, lest there be debates, envies, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. You say, what's a swelling? That's when one particular, just like in your body, you know, you get uh, some sort of an infection and, and it, a part of the body begins to swell. Sometimes a part of the body of Christ begins to get a bit swollen. It, it begins to think of itself more highly than it ought to think and it gets this fat head and uh, Paul's going to have to come and put a stop to that. Verse 21, and lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. So Paul says, I, I'll do what I have to do, but it's going to break my heart. I bewail them. Now, as it pertains to them doubting Paul's salvation, this thought continues into chapter 13. And I'm just going to introduce you to the information. We'll cover it more in detail later on. Verse 1, this is the third time I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Uh, I told you before, and I foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. So what is Paul promising? Guys, if I pitch up and you haven't fixed this, I'm bringing the rod. No doubt. Verse 3, since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. He says, that's why I won't spare. Because you want some evidence that I have been, that I have a God-ordained calling, right? A God-ordained ministry. He says, you want the evidence? I'll bring it. You want a powerful show of that authority? I'll prove my power. Verse 4, th this is a great verse. And God help me. I, 
I'm tempted to just teach it and preach it now, but we'll save it for later. For though he was crucified through weakness, speaking about Christ, yet he liveth by the power of God, even though my bodily presence might be weak, you can't judge things by the outward appearance. You have Christ hanging on a cross. There, if you look at that through natural eyes, you, you see weakness, you see defeat, you see the enemy overcoming. But that's not the whole story. You've got to look deeper. You've got to understand why he was hanging on that cross and who he was doing it for and, and what happened three days later when he rose from the grave and is alive forevermore. Right? So you can't just look at one moment of weakness. He says at the end of verse 4, For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So don't look at this outward exterior, or the, maybe the sound or the tone of my voice. Look at what God is doing through me. Look at how he's changed me. Verse 5, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Now this matches very closely with what we already looked at tonight in chapter 10, verse 7. Let him of himself think this again. So examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? So Paul points out, if you think I'm lost, what about your testimony? You claim to be saved the same way I claim to be saved. So if you're saying I'm lost, maybe the problem is you're lost. Maybe you don't understand what salvation actually is. We'll talk about this more when we get to chapter 13. I just wanted to show you how Paul kind of concludes this, this thought. All right, now back in chapter 10, let me bring forth these three thoughts that I believe we, we can pull from this passage. Number one, as it, come, as it pertains to proving your power, your authority, one thing we learn from this passage is boast only when necessary. Paul didn't want to do this, and he acknowledged that boasting is foolish. Right? He, he acknowledged as much. This is not what he wanted to do, but there does come a point Sometimes there are exceptional cases where you have to make your authority known. And as uncomfortable as it might be sometimes, you have to judge the situation to say, by doing this, am I going to be helping the people? Boast only when necessary. Uh, I've had to do this on occasion, especially as a coach. Right? I coached basketball for several years. And I was the, uh, the national coach for the Malawian basketball team while I lived there. And it was a great honor to coach that team for a year. And many times in the huddle, right, when you call timeout, you have one minute to talk to the team. Well, I know, I know how it feels to be a player. When you're out there in the midst of, you know, that athletic battle, your mind is running fast and furious. You call timeout. You want to tell your teammate, hey, stop running this way or get open over here. I'll throw you the ball. What it, you, you want to say something. But you can't have all, we have five men on the court at a time in basketball. You can't have all five men come off the court and start talking. If I have, I have one minute and I need to instruct the team on what they need to change and what they need to do more or less of, and sometimes... Those five guys come over and start bickering and fighting with each other. And I'll listen for about five seconds. And then I've got to, me, I, I would stomp my foot. I would stomp my foot so loud that they could feel it. Because sometimes it's very loud in the gym, you can't hear it. I'd stomp my foot. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't tell them this, but I actually hurt my knee several times. My right knee would be very sore because I'd stomp so much. <laughs> I would put my foot down, literally, and say, shut up. Everybody just shut up. Now, I didn't have time to be nice about it. And then I would bark at them, and I would tell them, this is what we're going to do. I had to put my foot down. Somebody's got to take control. You can't have all five guys trying to change the course of the game and everybody make decisions. I'm, I'm the leader of this team as the coach. 
I've got to say something. I'll tell you some other times you might have to do it. Now, as mom and dad, right, you don't have to go out of your way every day to prove to your kids you're in charge. You, need to, you don't need to remind them daily, I'm the mom, I'm the dad, and you little child just listen to me. You, obviously, that the child is going to know this by you simply being the proper kind of a parent. Same thing with a boss. We don't need constant reminders from the boss that you're the boss. We know that. If you're a good boss, we, we won't have any problems acknowledging that. But there are occasions, right, where you're going to have to boast a little bit. When the employees get out of hand, when the family, when the kids get out of hand, and they have thrown the, away the respect for your authority, and even though you've tried to remind them gently, they're not listening, then there might come a time you have to put your foot down and say, listen, guys, I didn't want to have to say this, but I'm still in charge, and you might have to remind them. So boast, but only when it's necessary. Uh, if you're filling out a CV, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but as a Christian, it just feels awkward to put on the CV all these great things about myself. Now, don't lie. If, if you don't have an impressive resume or CV, then don't, don't beef it up with things you didn't do. Be honest, right? Let the Lord open some doors for you. But you, when I say be honest, it might feel like boasting and therefore you think, oh, this is kind of feels like pride or something. No, you're just telling the truth about yourself. And that's all right. This is one of those exceptional times. Uh, if you go to court, right, and you whether you are the defendant or maybe a witness in a case, they're going to ask for your credentials. Why should we listen to you? Why should we put any stock in your testimony? You might be forced to say, listen, here's why I'm a trustworthy a source of information. And in such cases, yes, it might qualify as boasting, and usually that would be a foolish thing, but in this case, you would have to do it. So boast, but only when necessary. We see this in the Lord Jesus as well. He was not shy to make some very pointed claims, right? Before Abraham was, I am. Wow. And even the Jews that heard that said, what are you saying about yourself? You're not yet 50 years old and you you saw Abraham, Abraham saw your day and all of this stuff. And when, when they heard these things coming from his mouth, they took it as this man making these grandiose statements. They were true. And Jesus was trying to communicate a truth to a very hard-hearted crowd that wasn't catching on to the other statements he had made about himself being divine and being the Savior and the shepherd and so forth. So even Jesus at times, he made some very incredible sounding statements, but he did it when it was necessary. All right, another thing I'd like to point out that I think we learned from this passage, building up is the chief goal. Paul told us this in verse 8. The Lord has given you authority for the purpose of edification, not destruction. So I want to use the authority, the experience, the knowledge, uh, my resources. I want to use that to serve the people around me. Whether you're a pastor, a father, a boss, a husband, whatever the position of authority is, if we could just maintain that servant's mentality that I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, right? That's the right approach. When it comes to being a pastor, let me, let me say a little bit about this. Because sometimes, you know, the, uh, people say, man, the pastor, he, that sermon was pretty rough. And people say, why is the pastor so mean? Why would you have to say it like that? You know, when you're preaching to 10 people, it's different than when you're preaching to 200 because 10 people, there's a decent chance if all you have is 10 people in your church, you know what they've been up to. And you're probably going to address that a little differently. When you're preaching to 200 or 300, 500 people, there are people in the crowd that need a sharper rebuke. They might need to be woken up out of their sleep, sometimes literally, but maybe spiritually they need that jolt. So you do need to maybe say it a little more aggressively. Now, as a pastor myself, 
I, I know there are so many times I've gone home after a Sunday and thought, yeah, man, that came out wrong. That came out wrong. Now, I didn't mean it to sound that aggressive or I didn't mean it to sound that sarcastic. Sometimes it comes out sounding very arrogant and it's not what I was trying to say. It's not, it's not the way I wanted it to come out. But one thing you need to remember about your pastor is he's human, right? Preachers are human. It's my responsibility to always be aware that I have this calling from God and it is this authority is to be used for your benefit, to be a blessing, to, to benefit you, and to build you up. You say, but then why sometimes do you say things so strongly and so harshly? And, you know, some of that is subjective. What you consider harsh and, and bold, the next guy might see as, as not so bad. It kind of depends on what you've been exposed to. But in James 3, let me point this out. James says in verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters. So don't seek leadership positions. In, in the church he's speaking here, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, not only from the Lord, right? We are going to be judged um, based on how we perform these ministries and God has given us all the tools we need to perform it. He's going to hold us to a high standard. But we also receive greater condemnation because there are how many members in the church? They're all judging the pastor, right? So I got all these people with all their opinions saying he did a good job, did a bad job, whatever. You got a lot of people to, to um, a lot of opinions to consider there. So he says, guys, if you can stay out of the ministry, stay out. Because it's not, an, it's not an easy calling. People are going to be able to find fault with almost every, every message to say that could have been said differently. He should have said this. He should have said it like that. Verse 2, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. So I admit there are plenty of Sundays that I walk away thinking, man, if I could... If I could preach that again, I would, I would fix this and say that a little different. You know, give the sermon a tune-up, and it would really come across so much better the second time around. Um, it's a shame. You know, maybe I should try that more often. I don't recycle my sermons very often. I, in the whole time I've been in Potch, I can remember one time I preached a sermon one Sunday, and the next Sunday God told me to preach that same sermon again. And that, this is the only time in my life that he's done that, where I've been in the same church and preached the same thing twice. It, it was a unique circumstance. Uh, but beyond that, I would really like the second chance, maybe even sometimes a third chance, because I think to myself, this sermon, you know, this passage, these verses, I could have done so much better. I, I could have said it a little differently. I'll probably think that by the time I'm done with this lesson. I'll look back and go, man, I wish I would have said that or this. Guys, remember that your pastor is human. What you need to determine is this. Ask this question. Is my pastor trying to help me? Now, if you think that your pastor is an arrogant jerk and that he's using you as a punching bag, you're there to absorb all of his bitterness. You know, he's upset, he's angry, so he gets up on Sunday and just shouts and yells and rebukes and he's mean and nasty because he's a mean and nasty person. If that's what you think and feel, find another pastor. Now I say this, I'm, I realize that most of the people viewing this are probably our own church folk, but I know that there are people that watch this, this, uh, these lessons and they're not in our church. So I say this as it applies to every pastor. I have no personal... Um, uh, problems in, in this area. I'm not thinking of any individuals in our church that have raised this issue, but if, if that's how you feel about that pastor, don't go to that church. If you think he's trying to hurt and not help, if you think he's there just seeking attention and respect and honor, find another pastor. Find another preacher. But let me show you another verse in Jeremiah. When God called Jeremiah to preach... He said in, in Jeremiah 1, verse 8, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. God knew that Jeremiah 
he was going to be preaching to a hard-hearted, rebellious bunch of Jews. It says in verse 9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. That's what you want in a preacher. You want God's words in that man's mouth. Now watch what happens in verse 10. God says to Jeremiah, See, I have this day set thee over the nations. Do you see the God-ordained authority? I have set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down. And, and then he says to build and to plant. Now, now watch carefully how this verse plays out. Watch the verbs going here. To root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down. It doesn't stop there. Notice there's not an and. It doesn't say and to build. It just says to build and to plant. So there's two sides to this. You have six things mentioned, four, let's say negative, two positive, right? You've got to root out, pull down, destroy, throw down so that you can build and plant. Do you see the balance in that? You say, man, the pastor's preaching real hard and this is difficult to receive and sounds kind of mean. You know what he might be doing? It might feel like destruction. You say, yeah, but you were given authority not for destruction. That's not the end goal. That's not the chief goal. That's why point number two on my outline, building up is the chief goal. The end of this, right, is we want to build, we want to plant, we want to see this thing grow. But sometimes we have to break you down before you can be built back up. Sometimes you have to unlearn some things so that you can learn the right things. So you need to look at what the pastor is saying, teaching. Go through how that church is presenting that information, what they're presenting you, and, and, and ask that question. Is the pastor trying to help or hurt? What is his end goal? Why is he saying these harsh things? Uh, this is true, right? Now, this you can extend this beyond the church. Go into the workplace. Go into your home. Go into your school. Look at your government. You can look at your president and the elected officials and judge them by the same standard. Do they really have my best interest in, in mind? Are they trying to help? Are they a public servant? Is my dad trying to help me? Because, man, he has some harsh things to say. Yes, but is he saying these things because he loves you? Have, have you brought these things on yourself? Maybe you deserve to hear those things, right? Try to look at the heart of that man and try to see why he's doing those things. I've, heard, I've said this many times, and I believe it's fitting to mention it now again. Uh, and again, this applies not just to a pastor. This applies to anybody in any position of authority, but it's true. A man of God deserves respect, but a man of God never demands respect. Right? He's not going to force anybody, you have to respect me. A man of God is going to earn the respect by serving those around him. And God forbid, sometimes it gets to the point where he has to be a bit harsh and do some breaking down Please know that a God-ordained, a God-called pastor like Paul, he, he's trying to help. That's his end goal, even though he has some weighty things to say. And then lastly, one last thing I'd like to point out from this, bit by bit. I was tempted to put the Afrikaans in here, biki biki, little by little. Um, this is something that we touched on last week, but I thought it was worth pointing out again. Paul did not jump to this conclusion of, how dare you guys rebel against me? Out comes a rod. That's not his first option. Paul is slowly building up to this. He's saying, guys, I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Please get this stuff straight. I don't want to take it this far. Okay, I'm going to show you a little bit of my authority, but not all of it. If I come the third time, I'm not going to hold back. Do you see how he's warning them? You, you don't want to be quick to wrath. 
right? There's, there's a great verse in the book of James. I think everybody should memorize this verse. Uh, James 1, verse 19. Wherefore, my brethren, uh, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Verse 20. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Your temper will never accomplish the righteousness of God. Losing your temper does not bring about the desired effect. It might in the immediate, in the temporary, while that person is in your presence, cowering under your wrath, scared of you, they might, they, they might uh, conform to the, your desired behavior, but it's not going to be an inward transformation happening. They're doing that because they're terrified of you. And as soon as they're not in your presence, they're probably not going to seek to come in your presence again. They'll avoid you, but there's not going to be a long-lasting change. The wrath of man doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. Now, understand, Paul, I, I believe he's the perfect example in this, slow to wrath. Yes, if you're going to whisper and stir up the church and backbiting, and if you're going to uh, live in open sin in the church, then yeah, eventually you push the pastor's button enough. And it's not slow to wrath. That wrath is slowly built up. And that pastor should bit by bit, bicky bicky, little by little, say, guys, don't, don't make me, guys, s stop it. I used the illustration last week, but I think it's fitting here. It's, it's the dad driving the car and the kids in the back seat, you know, and they keep picking on each other and the dad says, stop it, stop it. Don't make me pull this car over. I'll come back there and show you who's, who's boss. See, so that's slow to wrath. Uh, you can, right? Wrath, wrath, anger. You can be angry and sin not. As long as that anger doesn't uh, control you, right? You need to control that anger. So do it slowly, bit by bit. Warn the people. Tell them this is what is going to happen if you do not stop. Don't just jump to, to yelling and screaming and, you know, getting physical. Uh, Jesus, didn't he do this? When he came the first time, he came as that suffering servant. And he takes our sins. He goes to the cross. We read it the, the, this evening. Crucified through weakness. But... Jesus also left behind a warning, didn't he? He says, I'm coming again. You'll see me in the clouds of heaven. He says, and when I come, when I come, there's going to be tribulation. The sun turns dark and the moon to blood and, and the angels come. He explains, he warned everybody, this is what it's going to be like in the end of the world, in the end of, you know, uh, when the kingdom is about to come. Jesus left it left a clear warning that, guys, if you stumble at the stone, you'll be broken. But if the stone falls on you, it'll grind you to powder. So we can even see in Jesus this gradual progression. He came gently, meekly as the Lamb of God. The second time he comes, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This Lamb comes with a lion's ferocity. And it, what greater example of slow to wrath? Right? He's given the world almost 2,000 years to get their act straight. But eventually, he's got to put his foot down. and He comes back and rules with a rod of iron. But only after mercy, grace, gentleness, all of that is, has run its course and had its chance. So bit by bit, slow to wrath. And remember, your temper isn't going to get the job done. Doing things right, doing things God's way is going to get the job done. Amen. So this lesson tonight, we've covered how to deal with the authority that God has given you. So please look in your own life at where you have an opportunity, uh, let's say, to, to manage people or to be over people, wherever, whatever position of authority you might have. Look at that opportunity you have and, and say, how can I use this to be a, a blessing and benefit these people? Don't worry. Don't worry if they don't get it right away. You don't have to go out of your way to prove to them how powerful you are. That's not the end goal. The end goal is not for them to 
to uh, bow down and honor you. The end goal is for them to learn and grow. The respect will come naturally by you just doing what you should do with the authority, the knowledge, the resources that God's given you. So I hope this has helped tonight. If anybody does have a question, you can slip it in just now. I'm going to pray. If there are no questions, I'll close the service. Father, thank you this evening for allowing us to cover this information. And uh, if it's helped no one else, Lord, it's helped me. It's been a great reminder of uh, why you've given me this calling, what you expect from me, Lord, and help me, give me wisdom uh, so that I can be a better servant, a better preacher, a better pastor. Lord, my heart's desire is to help. The Father, just like any human being, I, I fall short. Lord, sometimes it doesn't come out right. Sometimes the tongue gets tied. Lord, help me as I enter into the pulpit. I want, just like Jeremiah, to have you touch my mouth and put your words in my mouth. Father, whether it comes across strong and bold or gentle and meek, whatever the case is, Lord, deep in my heart, my, my desire is just to try to help. Please use me as a vessel to that end. And I pray you'd help all the folks that are listening. Lord, let them look in their life and how they can use the authority the experience, the, the learning that you've given them to be a, a help to those around them. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thank you so much. I don't see any questions, so we'll end it for tonight. Lord willing, uh, please don't forget, everybody that wants to come to the midweek uh, small group meeting, Thursday, 6 o'clock at my house. Lord willing, we'll see you then.